Section 70 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3, by George W. M. Reynolds. Section 70. Dr. Wagtail, Rosamond Torrance. Rosamond Torrance found the pious lady reclining on a sofa, and so profoundly absorbed, at all events apparently so, in the perusal of a chapter in the New Testament, that she did not immediately look up when the drawing-room door opened to give the young maiden admission. "'Ah, my dearest girl, is it indeed you?' at length said Mrs. Slingsby, in a dolorous tone of voice, as she laid aside the sacred volume. "'Come and embrace me, sweet Rosamond.' "'I hope you are better to-day, my dear madam,' was a sincere observation made by the intended victim of a damnable plot, as she pressed her pure lips to Mrs. Slingsby polluted brow. "'Heaven blessed me with a good night's rest, my love,' returned the pious lady, "'and Dr. Wagtail would insist upon my taking a little warm brandy and water, although, as you well know, I loathe alcoholic liquor.' which I do not consider to be a good creature of God, nor fitted for our use. But, as a medicine, Rosamond, and when accompanied by urgent prayer, it is beneficial. And now tell me, sweet girl, how passed off the bridal ceremony? Was the conduct of my nephew becoming and proper? I could scarcely suppose otherwise, seeing that for years he has been benefited by the advice and example which it has been my happy lot to afford him. And Adelie, was she much affected, my love? Rosamond described the particulars of the wedding, and Mrs. Slingsby was in the midst of some very comforting remarks thereon, when the door opened and Dr. Wagtail made his appearance. This gentleman was a short, fat, important-looking personage, with a powdered head and a pigtail, delighting, too, in small clothes and black gaiters, and carrying a thick bamboo cane, the gold head of which he invariably applied to his nose when he wanted to appear more than usually solemn. He enjoyed a large practice, and was yet miserably ignorant of the medical art. What, then, was the secret of his success? We will explain the mystery. His father was a very wealthy man, and paid a premium of eight hundred pounds to apprentice the subject of this sketch to the house-surgeon of one of the great metropolitan hospitals. But young Wagtail, though cunning and crafty enough, was a wretched dolt, and only succeeded in passing his examination by dint of the most extraordinary cramming. By these means, however, he became a member of the Royal College of Surgeons, and set up in business for himself. The house-surgeon of the hospital soon after hinted to him that he intended to resign, and Mr. Wagtail Sr., on hearing this private communication made to his son, immediately sent the house-surgeon a five-hundred-pound note in a gold snuff-box, as a token of esteem for his high character, and of admiration for his splendid talents. This was intelligible enough. The house-surgeon immediately began to canvass his friends on behalf of young Wagtail as his successor, and when the resignation of the said house-surgeon was publicly announced, the majority of the persons who had a right to vote were already enlisted in the cause of Mr. Wagtail. Several of the most eminent surgeons became candidates for the vacancy, 
but their abilities stood no chance when weighed against Mr. Wagtail's interest, and Mr. Wagtail was accordingly elected. He thus jumped into renown and handsome emolument almost as soon as he entered the profession, and things went on smoothly enough for three or four years, until he one morning took it into his head to cut off a man's leg, when amputation was positively unnecessary. A disturbance ensued, the thing got into the newspapers, and Mr. Wagtail employed three poor authors constantly for six months, at half a crown a day each, to get up the pamphlets which he issued in his defence. He so inundated the British public with his printed statements that he literally bullied or persuaded the majority into a belief that he was right after all, and then, with becoming indignation, he threw up his berth at the hospital, took a magnificent house at the West End, got his doctor's diploma at the same time, and announced through the medium of the Morning Post, Morning Herald, and St. James's Chronicle, that Dr. Wagtail might be consulted daily at his residence from two till seven. His father died soon afterwards, leaving him a handsome fortune, and as the doctor, when the time of mourning, which he cut as short as possible, had expired, began to give splendid entertainments. His dinners procured him friends, and his friends procured him patients. In fact, he eventually rose so high in public estimation at the West End, that he was quoted as the rival of the celebrated Dr. Lascelles. But wise men shook their heads, as much as to intimate that Dr. Lascelles had more medical knowledge in his little finger than Dr. Wagtail possessed in his entire form. But then Dr. Wagtail was so important-looking, and had such a knowing and mysterious way with him, and he never insulted his patients, as Dr. Lascelles sometimes did, by telling them that they had nothing the matter with them, but were mere hypochondriacs. On the contrary, he would gratify their fancies by prescribing pills and draughts till he made them ill in reality, and then he had some little trouble in curing them again. But as he administered plenty of medicine, shook his head a great many times, even when ordering a foot-bath or a bread poultice, and dropped mysterious hints about its being very fortunate that he was called in just at that precise moment, or else there would have been no answering for the consequences. As he did all this, and was particularly liberal to nurses, valets, and ladies' maids, he had worked his way up to a degree of eminence which real talent, legitimately exercised, struggled fruitlessly in ninety-nine cases out of a hundred to arrive at. Such was the physician who now entered the drawing-room, where Mrs. Slingsby was reclining on the sofa, with Rosamond seated near her. Bowing with important condescension to Miss Torrens, the doctor quietly took the chair which she vacated, because it was close to his patient. Rosamond was about to quit the room when Mrs. Slingsby desired her to remain, adding, "'Dr. Wagtail does not require your absence, my love.' "'There is nothing so very important in my case, is there, doctor?' "'Important, my dear madam, is not precisely the word,' returned the physician, with his gold-headed cane to his nose. "'Inasmuch as your ailment is important, as all ailments are, when, though trivial in themselves, they may lead to dangerous consequences. But how are we to-day, my dear madam? How is the pain in our legs? Did we suffer much last night?' or did we feel a little easier? "'Yes, doctor, thank you,' replied the sufferer, 
who had nothing at all the matter with her, but who had merely simulated indisposition as an excuse for absenting herself from the bridal. I passed a better night, by the blessing of heaven. Well, come, and so we are getting on nicely, eh? observed the doctor. And what did we take for supper last evening? A little gruel, doctor, as you ordered, answered Mrs. Slingsby, in a lachrymose tone, which was really natural enough, seeing that she could have eaten a roast fowl instead of the farinaceous slop. And did we take a very little brandy and water, hot? asked Dr. Wagtail, in a most insinuating voice, as much as to say that he knew very well how revolting such a beverage must have been to Mrs. Slingsby, although, in his heart, he had recommended it simply because experience had taught him that ladies of a certain age did not object to a small dose of cognac. Did we take a little brandy and water? I did so far follow your advice, doctor, replied Mrs. Slingsby, but I hope I am not to continue it. Indeed, but we must, though, my dear madam, exclaimed the physician, shaking his head most solemnly, and with all the air of a man enforcing the necessity of swallowing a nauseous draught. Indeed, but we must, though, and a trifle stronger, too, a mere trifle, but stronger it must be, or I really cannot answer for the consequences. And here he looked at Miss Torrens, as much as to imply that Mrs. Slingsby's life would perhaps be endangered if his advice were not punctually and accurately followed. "'Well, doctor,' said the suffering lady, in a more doleful tone than ever, "'if it must be stronger, it shall be. But pray make a cure of me, God willing, as soon as possible, so that I may renounce that vile alcoholic beverage.' "'We must have patience, my dear madam, great patience.' said Dr. Wagtail, with increasing solemnity, as he rubbed his nose against the gold-headed cane. Indeed, so long as this nasty rheumatism hangs about us, we must keep to the brandy and water. The physician knew very well that his words would cause the rheumatism to hang about the excellent lady for a considerable time. Indeed, that she would be in no hurry to get rid of it, so long as he prescribed the vile alcoholic beverage and he foresaw a goodly number of fees resulting from the judicious mode which he thus adopted of treating an ailment that did not exist. "'And now, my dear madam,' he continued, "'how is our tongue? Ah, not quite right yet. And how are our pulse?' Then, as the case was pronounced to be important, the doctor lugged out an enormous gold stopwatch, and bent over it with a mysterious and even ominous expression of countenance as he felt the patient's pulse. "'Well, doctor, what do you think?' asked Mrs. Slingsby, looking as anxious and miserable as if she had been in the dock at the Old Bailey, about to hear the verdict of the jury. "'We must take care of ourselves, my dear madam, we must take care of ourselves,' said the physician, shaking his head. "'Our pulse is not quite as it ought to be. How's our appetite? Do we think we could manage a little slice of boiled fowl to-day?' "'But we must try, my dear madam, we must try. "'And we must take a glass or two of wine, port wine, of a good body. "'We must not reduce ourselves too low. "'And this evening for supper we must take gruel again, "'and the brandy and water as an indispensable medicine afterwards.' "'I will endeavour to follow your advice, my dear sir,' said Mrs. Slingsby, "'though heaven knows that the idea of the old port wine at dinner.' "'Well, my dear madam, 
"'I know it is repugnant to you, very repugnant,' interrupted the physician in a calmly remonstrative tone. "'But the world cannot afford to lose so excellent a member of society as yourself. "'Consider your friends, my dear madam. "'Exert yourself on their account. "'Triumph over these little aversions to wine and brandy, "'and take them as medicines, in which sense do I offer them. "'And now, my dear madam, I will write you out a little prescription. "'You had better get it made up as usual at Timmins and Jake's in Bond Street. "'I have no interest in recommending them, you know.' not the slightest but i am sure their drugs are good my dear madam which was as much as to imply that the drugs of other chemists were not good and we may here observe that the disinterested physician merely received a thousand a year from messrs timmins and jakes for recommending all his patients to send his prescriptions to their shop the doctor wrote some professional hieroglyphics upon a slip of paper and scrawled at the bottom something which would have represented the name of Snooks, or Brown, or Thompson, quite as well as it did Wagtail. He then rose, received from Mrs. Slingsby his fee, neatly wrapped up in a piece of tissue paper, and took his departure, holding his stick to his nose all the way downstairs. The afternoon passed away somewhat tediously for Rosamond, and when dinner was placed on the table, Mrs. Slingsby contrived to do honour to the boiled fowls, and though she held forth at considerable length upon her abhorrence for port wine, she managed to swallow four glasses of the generous juice, in a manner which Rosamond considered highly creditable to her moral courage, seeing how much she detested it. Shortly after dinner, which was served in the drawing-room, Sir Henry Courtenay made his appearance. The baronet's eyes sparkled with delight when he beheld his intended victim at the pious lady's abode, and looking more sweetly beautiful, more divinely interesting, than she had ever yet appeared to him. The blood boiled in his veins, as his glances rapidly swept her slight but symmetrical form, and as he thought within the recesses of his own iniquitous heart, This night thou shalt become mine. It will be remembered that during the last few days of her previous sojourn at Mrs. Slingsby's abode, Rosamond had been taught to form a very high opinion of the baronet, but the pious lady had not gone so far as to instil any voluptuous sentiment into the mind of the young maiden. Thus, when the baronet, on the occasion of his visits to Torrens Cottage, had addressed her in a somewhat equivocal manner, she did not comprehend him, and hence Sir Henry's reproach against Mrs. Slingsby, that she was but an indifferent tutoress. Still, Rosamond was predisposed to admire the baronet's character, as it had been represented to her by Mrs. Slingsby, and she was by no means sorry that he had arrived to vary the monotony of the evening. He exerted all his conversational powers to please her, and she could not conceal from herself the delight which she experienced in listening to those outpourings of a well-informed mind and a richly cultivated intellect. The supper hour arrived while she thought the evening was still young, so rapidly had the time passed away. Mrs. Slingsby partook of her gruel with as good a grace as she could possibly assume, but she ever and anon cast a longing glance towards the more substantial and succulent viands spread upon the board. The brandy and water was, however, a consolation, and this the baronet, who mixed for her, made as strong as she could wish, and much stronger than Dr. Wagtail, were he really sincere in his advice, could have possibly intended her to take it. Shortly before eleven, the baronet rose and took his departure, 
Mrs. Slingsby ringing the drawing-room bell for the servant to open the front door for him, with a ceremony the object of which was to let every one in the house know that he had departed, and the hour at which he went, in case of any exposure following the dread plot now in progress. Mrs. Slingsby and Rosamond then remained in conversation for a few minutes, the topic being the excellent qualities of Sir Henry Courtney. "'Rosamond, my love,' at length said Mrs. Slingsby, "'before you retire to your own chamber, have the kindness to lock the sideboard in the drawing-room, and bring me the keys, for really servants are so neglectful.' The beautiful girl departed with the alacrity of an obliging disposition to execute this little commission. But the moment she had quitted the drawing-room, Mrs. Slingsby emptied the dark contents of a very small phial into the only half-finished glass of port wine which Rosamond had left. The infamous woman then resumed her recumbent position upon the sofa, and, oh, the abominable mockery, appeared to be occupied with her Bible, when the artless, innocent, and unsuspecting maiden returned to the room. "'Here are the keys, my dear madam,' said Rosamond and everything is safe downstairs. I shall now wish you a good night's rest. "'Finish your wine, my love, before you retire,' observed Mrs. Slingsby, in a softly persuasive tone. "'I am not mean, but you know that I am averse to waste in any shape.' Rosamond blushed at having merited the species of reproach thus conveyed, and drank the contents of her wine-glass. Then, as it struck her that the flavour of the wine was somewhat less pleasant than it should be, but without attaching the least importance to the idea, and forgetting it altogether a moment afterwards, she ate a small piece of bread to take away the disagreeable taste. "'Good night, my dear madam,' said the maiden, bending over the pious lady and kissing her cheek. "'Good night, Rosamond, my love,' returned Mrs. Slingsby. "'I shall remain here for a quarter of an hour to perform my usual devotional exercises,' and then I shall retire to my own chamber. Rosamond withdrew, and sped to the room prepared for her. She felt wearied, and made haste to lay aside her garments, and arrange her hair. But in the midst of her occupation, a sensation of deep drowsiness came over her, and she was glad to step into bed as speedily as possible, omitting for perhaps the first time since her childhood to kneel down first in prayer. A minute afterwards, and she was sound asleep. Three persons at that precise period had their minds filled with the image of Rosamond. In the solitude of his chamber, at his lonely cottage, Mr. Torrens endured the torments of the damned, mental torments indescribably more severe than the most agonising of physical pain could possibly be. Mercenary, selfish, cold, callous as he was, he could not stifle the still small voice of conscience which told him he had done a flagrant, a vile, an awful deed, which would fill his cup with a bitterness that no earthly pleasure, no mundane reward, could possibly counteract or change. He felt that he was a monster in human shape. He was afraid to catch a glimpse of his own countenance in the glass, for when he once surveyed it rapidly, its workings were horrible to behold. To sell his daughter for the filthy lucre which had tempted him, it was horrible, atrocious. And then, then, at that very moment, while he was pacing his chamber, the fell deed might be in consummation. He walked to the window. How black was the night! 
how menacing were those clouds that seemed laden with storm he started back with a look of horrified amazement was there not some dreadful shape in the air assumed not those clouds the form of a tremendous being with a countenance of lowering vengeance and awful threatenings no it was fancy and yet the temporary creation of that fancy was dreadful to behold as cloud piled on cloud for an instant wore the semblance of a supernal moving phantom black and menacing with impending storm the guilty wretched father clenched his fists gnashed his teeth knit his brows and compressed his lips together to prevent his voice from suddenly shrieking forth in accents of heartfelt agony having remained for about twenty minutes in the drawing-room mrs slingsby summoned her maid by whose assistance she gained her own chamber although she in reality no more required such aid than did the servant who afforded it the maid helped her mistress to divest herself of her clothing and then retired and now mrs slingsby instead of seeking her couch that couch which had been the scene of guilty pleasure when jacob smith had lain concealed beneath it seated herself in a large armchair to wait until the house was quiet i could wish that anything rather than this was to take place she murmured two or three times heaven only knows what will be the end of it but henry appears so confident of being able to appease her so certain of reducing her even to the position of one who beseeches instead of menacing that i am inclined to suppose he has well weighed all the difficulties of his task at all events he has promised to spare me to make me appear innocent but will rosamond be so deceived no no she will view me with suspicion her eyes will gradually open and yet thought mrs slingsby suddenly interrupting the current of her reflections she will be so completely in my power at my mercy her honour will be in my hands her reputation will depend on my secrecy oh how i wish this night was past she cried passionately for the deed which is to mark it is horrible to contemplate and the third person whose mind was so full of the image of rosamond torrance at the time when she lay down beauteous and chaste virgin as she was to rest beneath the roof of one whom in her ingenuous confidence she believed to be a pattern of female excellence and virtue that third person was sir henry courtenay the baronet on quitting mrs slingsby's house had returned home in his carriage which was at the door ready to convey him thither and on entering his abode he had immediately repaired to his own chamber dispensing with the services of his valet he sat down to pass away in voluptuous reflections the hour that must elapse before he could set forth again to return to the dwelling of his mistress in old burlington street he was of that age when the physical powers somewhat require the stimulus of an ardent and excited imagination and he now began to gloat in anticipation of the joys which he promised himself to experience in the ruin of the hapless rosamond remorse and compunction touched him not if he thought of the grief that was to ensue it was merely because he rearranged in his head all the details of the eloquent representations he must make to soothe that woe besides his licentious imagination represented to him the beauteous rosamond more beauteous in her tears and he had worked himself up to a pitch of such maddening desire by the time it was necessary for him to sally forth 
that he would not have resigned his expected prize. No, not if the ruin and disgrace of ten thousand families were to ensue. Leaving his house stealthily, by a means of egress at the back, Sir Henry Courtney hastened back to Old Burlington Street. A few moments after he had reached the immediate vicinity of Mrs. Slingsby's residence, the clocks of the West End churches proclaimed the hour of one. That was the appointed time for his admission into the house. Nor had he long to wait, for the front door was soon opened noiselessly and cautiously, and by a person bearing no light, but the voice which whispered, "'Is it you, Henry?' was that of Mrs. Slingsby. And noiselessly and cautiously, too, she led the way upstairs, he having previously put off his shoes, which he carried in his hand. At the door of her own bedroom, Mrs. Slingsby made the baronet pause for an instant while she procured a taper, and as she handed it to him, and the light revealed their countenances to each other, they shrank from each other's gaze, for human nature at that instant asserted its rightful empire, and while the woman recoiled with horror from the man who was about to commit an awful outrage on a member of her own sex, the man felt a momentary loathing for the woman who was aiding and abetting in the work of this foul night. Mrs. Slingsby hurriedly pointed towards a door at the bottom of the passage, in the most retired part of the house, and she then retreated into her own room, a prey to feelings which a convict in Newgate need not have envied. Meantime, Sir Henry Courtney had passed on to the extremity of the passage, and now his hand is upon the door. He opens that door, he enters, he closes and fastens it behind him. Advancing towards the bed, he holds the taper so that its light falls upon the pillow, and the soft, mellow lustre of the wax candle reveals a charming countenance, with flushed cheeks and with rosy lips apart. For Rosamond's slumber is uneasy, though profound, doubtless the effect of laudanum upon the nerves of one so entirely unaccustomed to its use, and who has imbibed so large a dose. And one of those flushed cheeks reposed on a round, full and naked arm, like a red rose-leaf upon Parian marble, and the other arm was thrown over the bedclothes, which had been somewhat disturbed by the uneasiness of the maiden's sleep, and left exposed the polished shoulders of dazzling whiteness, and the bosom of virgin rotundity and plumpness. Oh, what a charming picture was thus revealed to the eyes of the lustful miscreant, whose desires were increased to almost raging madness by the spectacle. He placed the taper on the mantle, and hastened to lay aside, nay, almost to tear off his garments, and in less than three minutes he was lying by the side of the young virgin. But scarcely had his rude hand invaded the treasures of her bosom when she awoke with a faint scream and a sudden start, the result of some disagreeable dream, and then the baronet clasped her with all the fury of licentiousness in his arms. A few moments elapsed ere she was aroused sufficiently to comprehend the dreadful, the horrible truth, but when the torpor produced by the laudanum had somewhat subsided, she became a prey to the most frightful alarms, produced by the conviction that someone had invaded the sanctity of her couch, and a glance showed her the features of Sir Henry Courtney. She would have given vent to her anguish and her horror in appalling screams, but he placed his hand over her mouth, he muttered fearful menaces in her ears, 
he called God to witness his resolution to possess her, and though she became bewildered and dismayed, though her brain whirled and her reason seemed to be deserting her, yet she battled with the ravisher. She maintained a desperate and awful struggle, and so unrelenting was the violence which he used to restrain and overpower her, that murder would have perhaps been done, had not the poor victim become insensible in his arms. And then her ruin was accomplished. O oh, ye clouds, laden with storm, why gave ye not forth your forked lightnings? Why sent ye not abroad your thunders, to smite the hero of that foul night? For, oh, while the father was still pacing his chamber in his own dwelling, the hell that raged in his breast defying all hope of slumber, while, too, the no less infamous woman who had pandered to this work of ruin was trembling rather for what might be the consequences than for the deed itself, there, in that room to which Rosamond had retired in the pride of innocence and chastity, there was she despoiled, there became she the victim of the miscreant ravisher. "'Release me! Let me depart! Let me fly!' implored the wretched Rosamond, in a tone so subdued with anguish and with weakness that there was no fear of its alarming the house. "'Rosamond, hear me! I beseech you!' exclaimed the baronet, as he held her by the arms in such a manner that she could not escape from the bed. "'Hear reason, if you can! What would you do? Whither can you fly?' The past cannot be recalled, but there is much to think of for the future. The occurrence of this night is a secret known only to yourself and to me. Your dishonour need never transpire to the world. Oh, my God, my God, murmured Rosamond, in a tone of ineffable anguish. My dishonour, my dishonour, and she repeated the word, the terrible word, in so thrilling, penetrating, and yet subdued a voice, that even the remorseless baronet was for a moment touched. "'Oh, Rosamond,' he said, in a hurried and excited manner, "'do not repine so bitterly for what cannot be recalled. Think how I love you, dearest one. Remember that my passion for thee amounted to a frenzy, and it was in frenzy that I acted thus. Instead of loathing me—' "'No, no, I do not loathe you, my God, no,' said Rosamond, becoming the least degree calmer. I now perceive how dependent I am upon you, how necessary it is that your love should console me. But, my dear father, should he learn his daughter's disgrace, oh, heaven, have mercy upon me! And she once more burst into an agony of weeping. Rosamond, Rosamond, compose yourself, said Sir Henry Courtney, with that tenderness of tone which he so well knew how to assume and on which he had so much relied as an emollient means to be applied to soothe the grief of the victim of his desires. "'Shall I repeat how deeply I love thee, how ardently I adore thee? Oh, my best beloved, do not thus abandon yourself to the wildness of a vain and useless despair. "'But have I not been made the victim of a dreadful conspiracy?' said Rosamond. Was I not inveigled hither to be ruined? Oh, I will fly, I will fly, I will hasten home to my father, I will throw myself at his feet and tell him all, and he will pardon and avenge me. Again she endeavoured to spring from the bed, but Sir Henry Courtney held her back, and, through sheer exhaustion, she fell weeping on his breast. Then the task of consoling her, or rather of somewhat moderating the excess of her anguish, became more easy, 
and the baronet reasoned and vowed, argued and protested, and pleaded for pardon so touchingly and with so much apparent contrition, that Rosamond began to believe there was indeed some extenuation for one who loved her so passionately, and who had been led away by the frenzy of those feelings of which she was the object. "'Oh, why, my adored girl, are you so beautiful?' murmured the baronet. "'Rather attribute my crime to the influence, the irresistible influence, of thine own charms, than to any deeply-seated wickedness on my part.' I should have become raving mad for love of thee, had not the fury of my passion hurried me on to that point when, reckless of all consequences, I had recourse to this stratagem. I know that my conduct is horrible, that it is vile and base in the extreme, but I sue to thee for pardon. I, so proud and haughty, yes, I, implore thee, my darling Rosamond, to forgive me, and, oh, if all the remainder of my life, devoted to thine happiness, can atone for my turpitude of this night, if the most unwearied affection, the most tender love, can impart consolation to thee, my angel, then wilt thou yet smile upon me, and the past shall be forgotten. Then you will make me your wife, murmured Rosamond. Yes, sweet girl, thou shalt become mine, mine in the sight of heaven, said the baronet, who would have made any pledge at that moment, in order to solace and reassure his victim. But wherefore not have told me that you loved me? Why not have demanded my hand of my father, and have married me, as Clarence did my sister? asked Rosamond, a doubt striking to her heart's core. I said many things to make you understand how dear you were to me, answered the baronet, and you did not comprehend my meaning. Remember you not that one day, when I called at your father's house, I met you alone in the parlour, and as you offered me your hand, I said, Happy will the man be on whom this fair hand shall be bestowed. And on another occasion, when you and I were again alone together, the conversation happened to turn upon death, and I remarked that it was dreadful to contemplate the idea of dying, but that I could lay down my life to serve you. Oh, yes, I remember now, murmured Rosamond and I even thought of those observations after you were gone, and they seemed to afford me pleasure to ponder upon them. Do you not now understand then, dearest angel, how disappointment at finding that I was not at once comprehended drove me to despair? said the wily baronet. Can you not pardon me if, thus driven to desperation, I vowed to possess you, to make you mine, so that you would be compelled to accept my hand, as you already reigned undisputed mistress over my heart. If you will fulfil your solemn promise to make me your wife, I shall yet be happy, and this dreadful night may be forgotten. No, not forgotten, continued Rosamond hastily, because the memory is immortal for such hours of anguish as these, but you will at least make all the atonement that lies in your power, and I may yet look the world in the face. Rosamond, my sweet Rosamond, within a month from this time thou shalt be my wife, said the baronet. With that assurance I must console myself, returned the still weeping girl, and now I adjure you, by the solemnity of the pledge which you have made me, and which I believe, I implore you, by that love which you declare you entertain for me, to leave me this moment. 
the baronet was fearful of reviving the storm of grief which his perfidious language had succeeded in quelling and he accordingly rose and resumed his apparel not a word was spoken during the two or three minutes which thus passed and when sir henry was once more dressed he approached the ruined girl saying one embrace rosamond and i leave thee till the morrow one word ere we part she said in a hurried and almost hollow tone does mrs slingsby know but surely surely she could not have lent herself and yet added the bewildered rosamond a second time interrupting herself abruptly how could you have gained admittance into the house and in the middle of the night oh heavens the most fearful suspicions calm yourself compose your feelings dearest said the baronet mrs slingsby knows that i adore you is aware that i love you because the long acquaintance indeed the sincere friendship which exists between us prevents me from having any secrets unrevealed to her but wrong not that amiable that excellent that pure-minded woman by unjust suspicions i entered her house like a thief by means of a window accidentally left unfastened and in the same manner must i escape now not for worlds would i have her suspect the occurrences of this night therefore my angel compose yourself so that your appearance may not engender any suspicion in her mind when you meet at the breakfast-table in the morning for remember my rosamond you will shortly become my wife and then as you yourself observed you will be enabled to look the world in the face and until that moment comes said rosamond with a deep sob i shall blush and be compelled to cast down my eyes in the presence of every one who knows me oh my god what cruel fears what dread thoughts oppress me and my sister is doubtless so happy heaven grant that she may never know the anguish which wrings my heart at this moment by everything sacred i conjure you to compose yourself rosamond exclaimed sir henry courtney now afraid to leave her lest in the dread excitement which was reanimating her she might lay violent hands upon herself for by the light of the taper he could perceive that her countenance was ashy pale and that while she was uttering those last words relative to her sister her features were suddenly distorted by an expression of intense mental agony compose myself oh how can i compose myself she exclaimed and then she burst into a torrent of tears the baronet knew the female heart too well not to allow her to give full vent to the pearly tide of anguish and three or four minutes elapsed he standing by the bed contemplating with but little emotion unless indeed it were of lust the beauteous being whom he had so ruthlessly ruined and she burying her face in her hands the tears trickling between her fingers and her agonizing sobs alone breaking the solemn stillness of the night sir henry courtney waited until the violence of this renewed outburst of ineffable woe had somewhat abated and then he again endeavoured to console the unhappy victim of his foul desires the ruined sufferer by his hellish turpitude and rosamond had so much need of solace and was so dependent on hope for the future to enable her to sustain the almost crushing misery of the present that she threw herself upon his honour his mercy his deceitful promises and she even smiled but faintly oh very faintly 
when he again employed his infernal sophistry to prove the deed of that dread night to be the surest testimony to his ardent love at length she was sufficiently composed to induce him to take his departure and like a vile snake as he was in heart he crept away from the chamber of the deflowered the ravished girl as he stole thus stealthily along the passage he observed a light streaming from mrs slingsby's room the door of which had been purposely left ajar he entered and found his accomplice still up nor had the abandoned woman felt the least inclination to retire to rest for her mind had been a prey to the most terrible alarms from the moment when the baronet had first set foot in rosamond's chamber i have succeeded and she will not proclaim the outrage to the world said sir henry courtney in a low tone i have moreover kept my word with you and have made her believe that you are innocent of any share in the proceeding mrs slingsby gave no answer but bit her underlip forcibly for vile as she herself was she could hardly prevent herself from exclaiming to her companion you are a black-hearted monster sir henry did not however notice that she was influenced by any emotion hostile to him or if he did he cared not to show that he perceived it but wishing his mistress good-night he quitted the room and stole out of the house End of section seventy.